Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. So today on Tech Mirror, our guest is Nitin Pai. He's the director and co-founder of Takshashila, an independent think tank and public policy school based in Bangalore, which is the tech capital of India, a controversial subject. Other cities would also claim that. And I would say also one of the dominant locuses of tech power in the world now. So Nitin, thank you so much for joining us on Tech Mirror today. No, no, I'm thrilled to be in your wonderful campus in this wonderful weather. Uh, and I'm really in no mood to talk about serious things. And <laughs> I hope we can talk about light things. The weather is just so good outside. I've met Nitin several times uh, in in Bangalore at your beautiful institute. Um, and it's really lovely to be able to welcome you here to the Australian National University in Canberra as well. And I'm also not in a mood for a serious conversation. So let's see what we can do with this. I thought what would be an interesting way to start today's podcast is actually to talk about the name of your institute, which I'd met you several times before I understood sort of the cultural background to that name, but it actually carries with it quite a lot of importance and framing of the mission of your organization and your institute. So could you maybe fill us in on that? Yeah. So we are called the Takshashila Institution. The word Takshashila comes from uh, the name of a city which is in modern day Pakistan, but was a very uh, important part of the subcontinent uh, 2,500 years ago. Mm. It's at the crossroads of uh, Hindu, Persian, Greek, Tibetan, Central Asian and Chinese cultures and a place where we believe was the first university town in the world, mm. right? So this was, a, this was a town where there were schools of public policy, there were schools of statecraft, there were schools of language, of culture, arts, and etc. And not in the form of a, uh, you know, like a structured university, but independent schools yeah. uh, run by very interesting people. And anybody who was anybody in the subcontinent or that part of the world had to be from Takshashila, right? Mm. So you're a prince, you're a general, you're a scholar, you would be from Takshashila. And... Uh, uh, so the name Takshashila is inspirational for us. It's anchored in our history, but very cosmopolitan now as it was then, right? Yeah. Open to ideas, open to influences, but very strongly moored uh, in your culture and civilization. Mm. And your background, you were a technologist um, and then you worked in government for a while, the Singaporean government, and then decided to found the institution what made you make that decision? It's not an easy thing to do. So what drove that choice? Well, actually, you know, I wanted to be an engineer. I, I graduated as an engineer from NTU. Uh, yeah. And I joined a startup right after I graduated. And in six months, we had the Asian economic crisis and our company went down. So I was retrenched and I was in the streets of Singapore looking for a job. I applied for every single job which had uh, the word engineer in it. Yeah. And... <laughs> And the government in uh, Singapore at that time was trying to recruit people uh, for something which they called the Singapore One Project, which was the world's first nationwide broadband network. Mm -hmm. And they wanted people who could govern and regulate that thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I joined the government in that. So long story short, I found myself in government and studying public policy probably at the right time in my career. I think gave me the idea that, look, uh, this is something powerful. And India at that time we're talking about the mid-2000s, mid did not have public policy schools mm -hmm. uh, in the in the private sector. Right? There were a couple of things in the within the government, but not in the private sector. 
and I said, look, if I have to make a change in India, uh, this is the place I need to go. And and Takshashila was born out of that realization uh, to set up a public policy school which will work with great people, uh, inspire them with great ideas, connect them to great networks and resources, and then you can make changes, mm. uh, which changes can happen. When you're telling that story, and um, particularly when you're starting out, can you remember the specifics of any of the the things that you're like, if I had have known that about government? Because um, I, th- I have this conversation actually a lot about how there is a disconnect between industry or technologists and an understanding of how government works and vice versa. I'm just interested in in if you can remember any of those specifics. Yeah, for me, it was really economic reasoning. Right? Yeah. Uh, especially the idea uh, of market failures and the role of government, right? Yeah. Uh, and the interface between market failures and government failures, externalities, public goods, and where and when does the government step in? Yeah. I had an instinctive understanding of markets and the you know the role of small government etc because i used to read the economist magazine cover to cover so it was my first economics uh, professor uh, but going to school uh, learning the concepts learning how to use those concepts in a structured way uh, brought me into a very different territory in terms of my thinking and what do you think looking at that intersection of public policy and technology at the moment what are some trends that you're particularly focused on in terms of new things that you're seeing emerging and maybe if we can look at it in terms of something that is a positive trend and something that is um, perhaps something that's more concerning. Yeah. Now, let me take this at two levels, right? Let me talk about one dimension, which is geopolitical Mm -hmm. and the second one, which is more of domestic politics. The geopolitical story is this. The world is seeing a contestation between two types of information order. There is one information order which is free and open. Mm. This is the internet which we all grew up with. You know, free flow of information, no restrictions on usage, no restriction on access. Everybody is included. Of course, you have the government regulations, but, you know, the the platform is free and open. The other kind of an information order we are seeing is closed and commanded, right? Which is, you know, manifested by China as, as, as the Chinese way of the internet, right? Which is... Uh, censorship, surveillance, uh, narratives which are pushed down from the top to the bottom. You have to comply. You have to follow the narrative. If you're outside the narrative, then you're wrong, you're evil, you're anti-national, you're, you're, you're unpatriotic and so forth. And these two types of in- information order are in contestation. Mm-hmm. In, in a way, you could put it at the, the closed system, the command system is challenging the open and free order and trying to expand its its perimeter. Which is why, for example, you'll see Chinese technologies um, being pushed into through the digital and belt and road projects in many other countries, right? Because China doesn't want to be the only one with that kind of an information order. It wants to have as many people, uh, as many countries as possible in that, right? Mm -hmm. Ideally, the whole world. And that contestation is important because uh, those of us who believe in liberal democracy, those of us who believe that, uh, you know, the individual rights and constitutions and uh, people have a general... Um, you know, a general push towards greater freedom, lesser discrimination, the expansion of the moral arc. We have to fight for a free and open internet. Mm. So that contestation is creating uh, technological uh, geopolitics on one side. You know, in other words, technology is bang right in the middle of geopolitics now mm. because this is the big contest of the day. This is the big contest of our times. Agree. Right. 
Uh, and we are all in this. Whether we like it or not, we are all in this. Now, the domestic part is to do with the way I think the information age is changing uh, what it means to be a liberal democracy in the first place. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, human beings are not the rational beings that we were cranked out to be. <laughs> so, so, so we have polarization across the world. Every democracy, every country which has a free and open uh, information sphere has political polarization. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in Brazil. It's happening in India. It's happening in Japan. It's happening in Australia. Uh, it's happening everywhere, right? Happening in Britain. So why is it that, why is it all of it is happening now, right? And the information age has something to do with it. Internet has something to do with it. And the question is what? What's happening? What's really happening is, you know, Kahneman has this fast brain and slow brain idea. And the slow brain is this intuitive brain which jumps from conclusion to conclusion and, this, and the slow brain sort of justifies those conclusions. Now, the internet is an outrage machine. So, the social media is an outrage machine. And what happens is you jump from outrage to outrage to outrage, mm. uh, making very instinctive uh, conclusions very quickly, one after the other. Your slow brain does not have time to catch up, to reason, to think. And it sort of justifies the fast brain's conclusions, right? And which means you're, you're, it's very easy to be triggered by bad news, by fear, anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. And and therefore, concerns over, because of the globalization, concerns over identity, right? And so all of this comes together and creates pol political polarization. And political polarization is a terrible way to run a democracy because we're not talking to each other. There are no debates, right? There are only things we just fling at each other. Uh, which means uh, democracy is not delivering its goods. Mm. So we've got to do something about uh, how 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 do we uh, how do we govern tech such that it delivers for democracy. Uh, representative democracy is working in form but not really in substance. So can we do something in the information age that now creates a mechanism where ordinary people can get together and uh, decide what kind of legislation to have, improve on that legislation, and amend that legislation as time goes, without necessarily having to go through a representative system. Now, you still need the politicians, not because they make great policy decisions, or they are, they are great in uh, understanding complex issues like quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and making laws about it. No, they are not. They are not. They are very good agents for the for citizens to repose their political power in. So you could have a system where the elected representatives are people who have been chosen by citizens to be powerful, politically powerful. Mm. But the engine that delivers policies, laws, regulations doesn't have to be the parliament, right? So this is at the, at the broadest level, I think, the, the consequence of, of uh, the information age. Mm. We are at a situation where we can redesign many of the institutions of democratic government because nobody said liberal democracy equals to representative democracy. Liberal democracy is a principle. It's, it's an idea that you want a rules-based order. You want to have rule of law. Uh, you want to avoid the tyranny of the majority. And you want to have uh, uh, you know, laws and rules made based on majority and consensus, right? And there's no reason it should be only through something called representative democracy. There might be other ways to do this. And I think it's it's the challenge of our times to be creative and think of mechanisms where we can make laws better. Mm. Uh, at the same time, we've got to figure out how 
you know, prevents social media from from doing nasty things to us. Uh, this is like doing brain surgery on a patient who's in the who's in the others uh, in another taxi through the window of this taxi. You're rolling down the windows, reaching out to the other side, and doing brain surgery. So it's it's almost like that. <laughs> Whilst driving really really fast. Yeah, by driving really on fast. a bad road. Yes, I I agree with you. And I think for any of our listeners sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, what Nitin is describing is is something that is um, a long way off. It's actually not dissimilar, not this, not exactly the same, but not dissimilar to the way that the Taiwanese citizen assemblies, for example, work. Um, where they do do a lot more um, civic engagement and outreach with their citizens to inform the way that their representative democracy works. And so I think there are models that are really, and a lot of people at the moment are talking about the fact that our democratic institutions are being eroded, but not a lot of people are putting tangible suggestions on the table in terms of what it is that we need, you know, alternative ideas and ways that we can you know, we're working within the structures that we have. We have to evolve them um, and how we do that effectively. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, in the context of a, a conversation like this, what India is doing around digital public goods is a really interesting example for me on that. But because when I speak to people in India, the motivation for the concept of digital public goods and digital public infrastructure is to both hold government to account and to hold the technologists to account. So can you talk a little bit about this? I know it's a subject you're very passionate about. Yeah. See, I don't look at this as, uh, you know, an accountability, uh, accountability mechanism in the first instance, right? I look at it as uh, something which 20 years ago we used to call national information infrastructure. Mm. Uh, that that phrase is out of fashion now, but this that's what it really is about. Uh, it's digital public infrastructure. So just like how uh, governments build uh, governments build roads, uh, airports, railway lines, and in some places run public transport, uh, this is the digital equivalent of it. Mm. Because a digital economy needs infrastructure. Now you could say that you know, you know we have infrastructure already, which is uh, the internet, or we have networks, and uh, which is true, which is the physical layer. They are the infrastructure, but at the functional layer. You need infrastructure that is uh, available to everybody, mm. right? Which is, I mean, imagine you're in a country where the roads are built by private companies and are available only to people who pay for that. Mm. Now, you could say that this is a great market-based solution uh, and uh, supply and demand meet at a point where which is optimal, but it's clearly not optimal because you have a social purpose. You need a road because you want to connect people who are not yet uh, rich uh, into a system, to, into an infrastructure where they have an opportunity to be rich. Mm -hmm. It's about opportunities for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. That's the reason why we have public roads. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why we have uh, public education, right? That's the reason why we have public hospitals. These are these are things which are in the infrastructures of opportunity, which you cannot deny to citizens mm -hmm. based on their ability to pay. So, what's the digital equivalent of this? The the digital payments infrastructure in India allows you to transfer as little as a paisa, 100 to a rupee at zero cost to the, to, the pay, uh, to, the, to, the, to the citizen. Of course, someone is going to pay that money somewhere, which is the banking system. I think that's where I think the debate is. How do you make it sustainable? Uh, who has to pay for this? How do, you, how do you charge and whom do you charge? That's, that's a secondary problem. That can be solved over a period of time. But if you have infrastructure on day one, which everybody can use, uh, with, with whoever has the phone to use it, you're now 
creating opportunities for a whole lot of people who were not previously connected. And then once you have to build public infrastructure, what kind of public infrastructure do you build? I think many of us are of the opinion it should be open public infrastructure, which allows anybody to join because it's public infrastructure, right? You can't prevent people from joining. Digital is a little harder to do than in the physical space because you can let anyone go onto a public road, but getting onto a digital highway uh, is not is not quite as simple. So ideally, you would have an open source, uh, you know, fully open source public digital infrastructure where people can look at the code, people can you know improve on the code, people can deploy different types of the code. So we are looking at uh, ID as a as a digital basis of digital infrastructure, the payment system, uh, an e-commerce network, uh, and healthcare and education. So there are a lot of things you could do on a public digital infrastructure, right? And there are different models. There's not just one model. Uh, but what is common to all of this is that it should be uh, it should be public, mm. it should be inclusive, it should be designed for adoption by all citizens, not the citizens who can afford to pay for it. Right? Mm. It has to be inclusive. The purpose is to create infrastructure of opportunity. Mm. Uh, so in, from that perspective, I'm very excited about it. Mm. Of course, in India, we have a lot of debate on the right way to do this. Mm. There are technological choices used. Should you have biometrics or not? Right? Should the biometrics include face recognition or not? Uh, should it be, um, for example, um, uh, supported by all financial institutions? Should you levy charges on merchants? Should you levy charges on on citizens? Right. Yeah. So, and should the should the government be uh, making this in the first place? Should you have um, you know private entities doing this? All of these are debates which are going on, and I think it's very interesting as a policy wonk to be in the middle of these debates. Mm. Uh, and they're very, very good arguments, uh, uh, both made by uh, the, the establishment as well as the critics of the establishment. And it's a great place to be in uh, and to be, uh, you know, be part of the overall design process, both the technical design of it as well as the governance design mm. of it right now. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's so important. We actually have to get the tech right, but we also have to get the governance right. And often when I'm talking about these types of system, particularly using the Indian example and talking to people here in Australia, and I talk about digital identity, often the instinctive response to this is on oh, the risks of invasions of privacy, um, of government being able to interfere. That's the instinctive response that people have here in Australia when you describe that kind of digital system. Um, how do you respond to that? And it's a really legitimate concern that people do have, um, but at the same time, there is all of this opportunity that there is um, if we can overcome those very legitimate fears and concerns. Jenna, I start with the assumption, and this might be a this might be uh, the arrogance of an engineer, right? <laughs> but I start with the with the with the belief that it is possible to square. Um, technological progress with um, humanitarian philosophy, mm -hmm. right? It is possible to have an ID system and privacy. It is possible to have a payment system and protect yourself from being surveilled by the government. Mm -hmm. It is possible to have a national ID system and uh, still protect your privacy and being being exploited by the others. It's possible. Mm -hmm. I think what's happened is in the in the run up to many of these things, you have a bunch of technocrats 
who are not really sensitive to the policy dimensions of it many of very often they are not even aware of these things yeah. because I, i mean self confession right so yeah. uh, i start off as an engineer i'm oblivious to this i i'm oblivious to many areas of human knowledge right i'm just focused on solving a particular problem in front of me uh, in a given time in a most elegant way in the lowest budget and so on and so forth it's only after i'm made aware of social concerns that i begin to incorporate them into my design choices so very often uh, engineers are uneducated in the social sciences in the humanities which causes them to move in a particular direction and say hey let's go with confidence in this they go with greater confidence than they need to have now on the other side is a whole bunch of people who either are unaware of what technology can do mm. or very suspicious of engineers <laughs> right or or both now what happens is th- these two groups don't come together uh and it's important for technology policy people to try and bring these two things right it, it's only when these two groups of people have a conversation it could be an animated almost flinging things at each other kind of conversation but if we can create platforms where people can come together and say look we 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 you have this point i have this point let's let's come together and solve this together i think you will be able to uh come up with solutions that work right which work for all which yeah. which, which address uh, most people's concerns to the, to the maximum possible extent you can't satisfy everybody but you'll be able to solve satisfy a lot of people but these conversations don't happen mm-hmm. right they don't happen because sometimes governments are in a rush sometimes governments don't want to have these conversations because they they are, they are afraid of of a pushback uh, and they know that the pushback can derail the entire project so they might as well present you as a fait accompli and here's this guys uh, take this and run and and very often i think is because engineers don't see a need to talk to these other people because engineers see these guys as naysayers as dissenters as problems people who throw spanners in the works and so on so having that conversation in places like your outfit mm. or in our outfit these are the places where you need to bring these communities together and say let's do this because it is possible but since we are here and now i think it's we are obliged to design governance frameworks around technology that satisfy our foundational constitutional values that is important right what's your what's the what's the touchstone right what's your north star what are you orienting towards when you talk about governing tech mm. we're just saying that whatever you do in tech should be consistent with the foundational constitutional values yeah. and should promote those constitutional values rather than erode them mm. Yeah, and I think that's so important, especially when you're talking about um, from the geopolitical um, perspective and and a free and open vision versus um, the closed and controlled vision that you were describing, and particularly as uh, often the response to the increasing competition coming from the control version is actually to exert more control within a free and open context. So you are. um in responding eroding the very thing that actually we should be protecting and that's part of that inherent challenge that we have You've been listening to Tech Mirror a podcast from the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Center If you like what you're hearing we would love it if you would give us a 5-star rating or even better leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice This only takes a few moments of your time and it really does help us to promote the podcast and get more people involved in these important conversations Now enough interruptions from me let's dive back into this episode
What do you think in terms of some of the the biggest areas of geopolitical contest that we have? What what are the areas that you're most focused on? I know we've we've both written on the issue of semiconductors. It was a bit spooky, actually. We sent um, the, the messages to each other and they were almost identical articles, except yours was better than mine. Are there other issues that you're focused on from a geopolitical perspective? Geopolitically, I think, uh, I mean, again, as an, as an engineer, I think of it in layers. Yeah. So the, the, there are five layers in which uh, this contestation is happening. Mm. Uh, the lowermost layer is semiconductors, right? Uh, above that is infrastructure, mm. which is your physical infrastructure, your satellites, your undersea cables, 5G. your 5G <laughs> and 6G and wireless networks and so on. Um, then you have operating systems. Yeah. Uh, then you have uh, um, platforms and then you have content. So the, the competition is across all of this. Now, uh, the contestation is across all of this. Now, you talked about semiconductors, but let me let me pick about uh, let me pick one more of these, which is platforms, right? Now the challenge is not just um, the kind of platforms, the surveillance-based platforms which China is building. It's also the political power of companies like uh, Twitter and Facebook and Google and Apple. They are not antitrust problems. They are actually problems of a new kind where you have large multinational networks which have political power in almost every jurisdiction they, they operate in. Mm. They can swing elections. They can swing uh, purchase decisions. They can, dis they can swing cultural issues, right? They can move the needle on the progress of human society. So they're immensely powerful, but they're not accountable to anybody. Mm. Maybe they're accountable to the US Congress if, if they are US companies, but they're not, accounting to, uh, they're not accountable to the Australian parliament. They're not accountable to Indian parliament. How do you now make them accountable, right? Uh, democratically accountable. Mm. Uh, that's one, one part of the platform issue. The other one is, uh, now that everything is on cloud, uh, there's a great geopolitical risk of relying on cloud platforms because the Russian, Russian invasion of Ukraine is telling us that if Washington falls out of love with your capital, the technology companies might be tempted to pull the plug, right? And then if you have data based on these cloud platforms and Washington falls out of love, uh, with your capital, with Canberra, say, right? There's a chance that you lose access to that, right? So we have problems in platforms which are not just China-related, they're also big tech-related, they're also geopolitics-related. So I think we need we need platforms which countries are comfortable owning, mm. where they know that their critical data and uh, critical networks are not under the control of either China or Elon Musk, of the world or 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 even washington uh, and they know that uh, you 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 need to be able to protect your data and network in a world which is networked because it's very easy to say we're going to unplug ourselves from the rest of the world you know you can be a little digital north korea and say that look we're we're going to cut off connections with everybody else uh, and we'll be happy and we'll be self sufficient and so on but it makes no sense because you've you've lost the benefits of being connected so mm. you have to be connected you have to increase your connectivity across the prism including to the chinese uh, you know to the chinese world right you 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 can't cut off connections from them with them but you need to be secure in the knowledge that your critical systems work for you now that's a very different kind of challenge than we've faced ever right and uh, so that's 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 one part. Then in content, now I'll give you an interesting example, right? 
Everybody thinks that the great firewall which China has is a is a censorship barrier. Right? Everybody thinks that this is a this is a political move by the Chinese Communist Party to protect Chinese citizens from ideas which the Communist Party doesn't want them to access, which is true. But look at it from the perspective of an Indian media company. Now we have in India a very very vibrant media and content company uh, content industry which wants to sell its services to China. So the Chinese market. But they can't because there's a firewall. right? So as far as the media industry in India is concerned, it is a trade barrier. Right? It becomes a trade issue. So why is it, you know, when, when, the, when the whole TikTok issue came, I said, why is it that banning TikTok is seen as a, as a bad idea when China has banned literally every single technology platform or content platform India has? Mm. So... In, you know, just from a trade negotiation perspective, it makes sense for us to say, hey guys, let, uh, you know, let our companies in and we let your companies in, right? So a whole lot of uh, issues across these five areas, whether it's content, platforms, um, operating systems, infrastructure and semiconductor mm -hmm. runs through a whole lot of these political slash economic slash security issues. Mm -hmm. These are just examples. But, you know, when you think of it, there's a whole lot of them. Mm -hmm. Not all of them are binary in the sense that this is a contest between a closed Chinese system and a free and open system. Yeah. But there are a lot of competitions within the free and open system as well. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the TikTok example to me is always very interesting, the focus that there is on TikTok as opposed to other Chinese applications. And of course, India has banned a plethora of Chinese applications and you, you did it before the rest of the world. That's through your IT rules. Um, and... We've we've just banned TikTok on Australian government devices, but for example, you can use um, WeChat or um, other Chinese. You know, the, this, that that ban is only to one particular platform, which I find to be um, quite an interesting uh, approach. I, I I would like to pose um, a provocative question to you. Do you think the idea of the global internet then is over? Let me just make a point about what you said about TikTok before we... we I, I will answer that question. Uh, I think my criticism about the Western way of looking at uh, information warfare and cyber warfare, it's yeah. focused overly on the hacking of machines and not on the hacking of minds. Mm -hmm. So when you talked about Australia's policy on TikTok, you ban it on government devices because you're worried that TikTok can be a security threat and they might use it to hack government machines. Yeah. That's not the point. That's not... I agree. What TikTok is trying to do is to hack minds and get people to think in a particular way that ultimately could be used in a way that supports the views and the values and the interests of the Chinese Communist Party, mm. right? So it's about hacking the minds of Australians that you need to worry about, not hacking the devices of Australian government servants. Yeah. Well, I think you probably need to do both, but the point is there's not enough focus on the way that TikTok is shaping culture um, and changing, you know, so much, so many people in Australia are using TikTok. I go to my bookshop now and the the you walk in the door and it's the TikTok book recommendations that are sitting out exactly. the front, right? So it's it's having a very direct impact in shaping our society. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the threat is epistemological, right? It's not it's not about hack I mean, you can survive a hacking of a network, you can you can rebuild networks, you can re but once people's minds are made up, once people think about knowledge in a particular way, you can't you can't go back. 
There is a Philip K. Dick story, short story on this. I forget the name. It's about a game which people play and the customs are worried about a hostile spying device coming through the toys. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's in the rules of the game. So they actually send a toy to you, which is like Monopoly. Mm -hmm. And the rules of the Monopoly are for you to lose all the money. So the person who loses money, all the money first is the winner, right? Yeah. So that's that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to infiltrate at the level of knowledge of the sense of right and wrong, of profit and loss. And that's the game, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's the reason to be worried about Chinese applications, not because not only because they're going to hack yes. and you know read your email or something, but on the on the nest of the internet, I think that the internet is no longer what it was. I think we have a lot of internets now. Mm. Many of them don't actually talk to each other. Facebook is your biggest example. Yes, exactly. Right, you yeah. have many services today which don't give you a URL. When I was growing up on the internet, not having a URL was a criminal offense. I mean, in 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 the internet world, it was it was yeah. close to a sin. It was yeah. it was more. You should have every single resource with a URL. Facebook and the others were the first guys who said, "Look, we're going to build systems where URLs are going to be deprecated. We're not going to really worry about URLs and so forth." Right. So the breaking of the internet already started with big tech about fifteen years ago. Mm. What we need to do now is to ensure that interoperability using the IP protocol exists. Mm. As long as that exists, to a large extent, you have a internet, mm. right? Mm. But it's not this, it's not the kind of a internet we would have talked about 25 years ago, right? It's a lot of these little internets which can still talk to each other, right? Uh, but don't work the way, all of them are not uniform. They work in different ways in different places and so on. I think we're already there. Yeah. Uh, what, what we must do is intervene at the level of the rules of using these internets. And this is what I mean by free and open, mm -hmm. right? In the sense that you can't prevent anyone from using the internet. You can't prevent, you shouldn't prevent anyone from using the internet, right? You should not have censorship. Censorship should be an exception rather than the rule. Surveillance should be an exception rather than the rule. Safety should be the rule, right? And in, uh, invasion of safety should be the exception and so on and so forth. That's the, the game now. The technological game, I think, uh, you know, whichever form or shape it takes, as long as we have rules that that uphold a free and an open information order, mm. we'll be all right. Mm. Yeah, and I think that point about interoperability is really important. It also emphasizes the importance of the digital public goods and conceptualizing access to these types of products as yes, there will be some that are walled gardens that are that have a price of entry, um, but it is also important that we have the equity and the availability for the social development benefits that come from that, but also because that's what we stand for as societies. And embedding those principles is also really important. And it's, it's interesting to me, I think one of the biggest trends I've observed in Australia in particular over, let's say, the last eight or nine months is this real push around responsible technology. So it is also reflected, I guess, in the new US cyber strategy where they're saying the cost now should be borne by the people who are making the tech. You know, it's their obligation to make tech that is secure, tech that is safe. And these are not new concepts, but what is new is um, how prominent they are in the public discourse and how much they're becoming part of the regulatory conversation as well. One thing I just wanted to touch on, the work that you're doing at Takshashila around public policy and teaching tech policy. Could you just speak to us a little bit about that? Because 
What you're doing there, I think, is actually quite unique in the sense that you are bringing the technologists and the public policy people together. Um, what's your motive? I mean, I know what, what your motivation is, but I want, I want our listeners to hear what the motivation is. <laughs> right. no, I, I'm actually happy to hear what you just said about, you know, responsible tech becoming uh, a buzzword now and regulators around the world paying attention mm. to it. I'm, I'm vindicated when I hear that. Because for the past several years, what has been of concern to me is that a lot of uh, people in tech uh, have sort of lost their moorings, which came from Silicon Valley, right? Silicon Valley of the 80s and the 90s, mm. and maybe some Western European countries, where which were very, very liberal democracies. In many parts, many pa many people in the early internet were actually libertarians, right? Mm. So. Uh, and there was this suspicion of government. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a there was a feeling that you know the open source movement talking about things being free and open. So uh, a whole of the, that mooring was lost in the last uh, few years. Maybe you could even say last fifteen years by two types of people, right? You had one is the is a Facebook type of people, right? The, the the people who felt that look, let's go and conquer the world and make this a walled garden, mm -hmm. and so we become the biggest gorilla, in, you know, in in the game. And the second were a bunch of people who were somehow mesmerized by the Chinese model, right? Where because of Chinese VC investments, Chinese uh, technological models, Chinese uh, business models, uh, which were very seductive, uh, TikTok uh, and WeChat and the others being examples of which. And my fear was that willy-nilly, without thinking too hard, we might end up in technological dystopias of one kind or the other, mm. right? The chances of being, uh, you know, railroaded, unconsciously railroaded into a China-style ecosystem was very high because a lot of these things look very effective and efficient, right? Uh, oh, the social credit system. It's, it's a wonderful way for you to figure out whom to give loans to. You can do microcredit. There are so many great advantages of social credit system. Why don't we have a social credit system? Isn't it different? Isn't, isn't it the same as rating your Uber driver five stars? No, it's not. So not. It's so not, right? Because, but but to a, to a lot of Technologists at, 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 a, at a superficial level, it looks like the same thing. Mm. So you got to say, hey, no, the social credit system is something deeper, right? It's a matter of social control. You have to now think deeply about it and don't create technology, you know, you know, solutions or tech that takes us into that world without us having opted for it. And what we try to do at Takshashila is try to build a program where we could work with people who are building tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, developers, investors, managers, regulatory people, and also work with people who are in the business of understanding the social impact of tech, uh, nonprofits, media, people in government, uh, intellectuals of various kinds, and say, hey, come together and let's say, can we now figure out how to do tech policy in a way that teaches you and teaches all of us to do responsible tech? Mm. So we built a tool called uh, Social Impact Analysis, uh, which is uh, a, a simple set of questions. It's a questionnaire with you know 50 to 100 questions, which tries to anticipate how a society will respond to tech. Mm -hmm. And then once you anticipate that, you can build tech that sort of uh, you know strengthens the pros and mitigates the cons. Mm. And all you're saying is that, look, anticipate this stuff. And anticipation is something which uh, uh, is is a as an attitude you need to do. 
but it's also a skill that you need to learn yeah. right and if you're a, if you're a practitioner if you're a developer you're an investor you want to have a set of questions you know uh, best practices say how do you, how do i now and how do i know that the thing which i'm building is going to strengthen uh, the constitutional values of australia mm. how do i know that the things which i'm uh, building is going to make australians freer um, and more and less discriminatory and more enlightened mm. right how how do i make the world a better place now if you do that in a way that is structured and give people a toolkit the assumption is that you know they'll do they'll make use of it because i don't think there are any people in tech who are nasty uh, by design you know nobody goes out and says oh i'm going to build this evil thing which is going to do make life hell for a lot of people everybody wants to do a good job everyone wants to do things uh, improve things for everyone but you have to know how mm. and you have to and that how is not just uh, 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 you know a textbook but it's also a conversation that you have with other people who not don't necessarily think the same as you do exactly and don't use the same vocabulary which i think is also what's so important about that type of um work that you're doing with the checklists and and it is it's not about giving people the answer it's about giving them a framework so that they're thinking about not just solving the solution that is you know the challenge that is in front of them but also then thinking about the the um next and and other ways that that technology might be used in entirely different ways because if we learn one thing from history it is that technology is very very rarely used for the purpose for which it was designed right it, it has these other uh, and that's what makes it so exciting as well so, Nitin, the last question we always ask all of our guests is, where do you go to for sources of information? Do you do you have um, particular people that you follow on social media? Do you um, subscribe to particular newsletters? Is there, you know, a book that you've read that you recommend other people to read? And um, we're always looking for good recommendations. I'll probably put the recommendations on uh, on the website because there are just too many. My head explodes when I have to think. Then <laughs> <laughs> I think we failed in our mission not to talk about the heavy subjects. Yes, but, we ended um... up ended up doing that. Uh, <laughs> apologies to all your readers because, uh, yeah, but you know, it just so happens that uh, the work we do is uh, serious. I think uh, I can't think of any profession which is. Uh, we, uh, you know, getting things right is so important as ours mm. because the next generation or more depends on how we get these things right. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's not, you know, it's not, it's not like nuclear weapons where you think about annihilation because you get things wrong. But this is this works at a very different level. It's about how people's minds change. Yeah. You know how people think about the world, how that changes, and how you, you know, how you can create a future. Uh, a positive future if you do it right. Yeah. And a very, very bad future if you do it wrong. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nitin. And I am committed to working with you and Taksha Schiller to make that positive future um, become a reality. And um, thank you for being with us today, but also for your partnership. Um, and, and it's always a pleasure talking to you. Look forward to working together. Thank you. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.